The New Testament scripture reading today comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 1 to 6. Hear then the word of the Lord. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I'm sure I've used this for a scripture reading before. Uh, maybe I haven't, but you'll probably hear it a lot from me because it's just one of those passages that is almost always in my mind. It's, it's so full. It's so uh, rich. It speaks about how you can see Jesus. How do you see the face of Jesus? How do you see his glory? It's in the proclamation of the gospel. You, you see by hearing. It's with eyes of faith that you can see Jesus as his word is proclaimed. That's what Paul says here. Right? Maybe you've wondered before, how come Jesus did not leave behind some kind of you know, visual representation of himself? Why didn't he leave pictures? Why, why didn't he leave uh, you know, something like that? Why didn't why didn't the, the apostles, like in almost every other religion, why didn't they set up some kind of you know, statue or, or why didn't Jesus give them some kind of words about what they are to do to make a, a, an image of him that people could look to, that people would have? Why didn't he do that? Because the way that you truly see him is not just through physical eyes, but rather by hearing his word. If you read through the New Testament, you'll find very little said about the actual physical appearance of Christ. And yet it's all about him. It's all about who he is, his, his nature, his, his perfection. Paul teaches just before this in 2 Corinthians 3 about Moses, when Moses came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments. After he had gone up and he had met with the Lord and been in his glory for 40 days, he comes down and his face is shining, we're told, with the glory of God. And the people are afraid of him, so they veil him. He puts a veil over his face to cover it. And Paul says that that veil... That veil that covers God's glory as it is manifest is only revealed in the proclamation of the gospel. It's in Christ that this covering over the, the glory of God is removed. And, and you might think, well, then why don't I see it? Right? Where is it? Where, 
where is it that I'm supposed to look to see this, this visible physical glory? Paul says it's in the face of Jesus Christ. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. And just like Moses' face conveyed the glory of God, so now in in the most perfect way, Jesus' face does. He is, it says, the image of God. Verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He is the image that displays fully the, the, the character and nature of God. But notice how Paul says you can see it. Right? He is the image of God for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Right? He is the image. How do you see it? How is that unveiled? We proclaim it. That's how it's unveiled. That's how you can see him. It's in the proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord that you can see him, to truly know him, to apprehend him, to know him. Faith comes by seeing? No. No, you know the passage. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of truth, the word of God. God said, let there be light. This is his first word, the first word that he gives in Scripture, in all of creation, the first thing, let there be light. This is something he said even before there was a a physical sun. Right? There, There was light before by his word. And in the same way, even if we don't receive a physical image of Christ any longer, even if he is not physically present, still, through the proclamation of the gospel, God says, let there be light. And that light is there in our hearts, in the proclamation that Jesus is Lord, his word, his first word, the word through which all things have been made and even now are being remade in him. That's how you are given the ability to to see him, truly see him. You see him by hearing, hearing the word of God. We're continuing today in the Ten Commandments. If you turn to Exodus chapter 20, you find in your pew Bibles on page 61. And we're focusing on the second commandment on verses 4 to 6, but I will read for us uh, starting in verse 1 through verse 6. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is God's holy and inspired word for us this morning. You know, last week, 
looking at the first commandment, we saw that our worship is to be directed toward God and God alone. And today, in the second commandment, we learn that your worship is also to be determined by God and God alone. When we read the commandments, they're, they're put in the negative, right? You shall not. But uh, there's also a corresponding positive command. They require something of us. And we know that because that's how the whole rest of the Old Testament law bears them out, right, in more positive and negative laws. It's also how Jesus himself summarized the law as love God and love neighbor, right? It, it's positive. It, it is active. If it was purely the negative, maybe we could read these things and think, well, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, I don't have any other gods. But what if you don't also positively worship the one true God? You haven't fulfilled the command. The same is true here. It's not enough to simply not worship God in the ways he does not want, but you must also seek to worship him in the way that he does want. God determines how we are to worship. So then let us determine to worship him as he desires. God determines how we are to worship. So then let us determine to worship him as he desires. What we have here in the second commandment is we we have the command and then we have the explanation of the reason for such a command. So that's how we're going to work through it. The command is this. You shall not make for yourself, bow down to, or serve a carved image. Now this is not a blanket command against the creative arts. It's not saying you shall not make anything of any likeness for any reason. right? You shall not create art at all or something like that. We know that can't be the case because God will go on to explicitly tell the people of Israel right after this to make things, right? to build things. They are, they are to make the tabernacle, to make all of the furnishings within the tabernacle. They're even commanded how to build the Ark of the Covenant. Sitting on top of the Ark is what? To cherubim, right? to, to things of heaven. And God commands them to make these. So that can't be what it's saying. It's not a a blanket forbidding of art being used in the church or by the people of God. Then what is it saying? It's forbidding the creation of any image of God himself, especially as a, a means or aid to their worship. It's not forbidding the worship of other gods. We've already seen that. It's forbidding the worship of God through man-made means, through, through man-made representations of him. And this is what Israel would have naturally wanted to do, having been in Egypt for 400 years, right? surrounded by people everywhere who worship God in this way. This is what they would have known. Now, we know that Israel disobeys this command almost exactly when God is giving it to Moses. I mean, Moses will come down from the mountain and find the people worshiping a golden calf. And 
what does Aaron say? When, when he brings the people together, they, they want him to make for them this image of God, and, and he makes it. What does he say? He doesn't say, behold, here is the real God that brought you out of Egypt, not that God Yahweh that Moses talks about. He doesn't say this is a different God. He says, behold, Yahweh your God who brought you out of Egypt. He's saying this, this is Yahweh. Not, not that they thought that somehow God was confined to this image, to this statue, this sculpture that they made. In the ancient world, people didn't believe that gods were confined completely to that one physical item. But rather, it was through this, right? Through this means they could more readily worship him. The people had been catechized and enculturated into the idea of worshiping images as a means to worship God. And so that's what they wanted. That's what they tried to do. But God does not want you to try to make for yourself some kind of representation of him. Right? He, he doesn't want you to make for yourself means of worship. They thought that they could use these things to worship God, and he says he won't have it. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. And, and there's a, a total prohibition on anything within the you know, created order, right? In, in heaven, on earth, under the earth. It's everywhere, right? Wherever it might be, things above or things below. Nothing in all of creation that can be conceived of in the human mind should be said to be an image of the triune God because it, by definition, will limit him. It, it by definition, will veil some of his glory. Specifically, though, again, it's, it's not just you shall not make, it's you shall not bow down to or serve. Right, to bow down, this is a, a general term for worship, but its emphasis is on these physical acts. Right? Bowing down to, kneeling before, kissing, gazing upon. These are actions that people would take with their physical idols. This is how you would show devotion to them. It says you shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. And the term here is a is a term that generally described the, the work of the priests, the work of the Levites. In other words, you shall not make these images of God to direct worship toward or as a means of worship, and you shall not use these in your liturgies, right? in the worship of the people that he was going to give. That's what this is saying. You cannot honor uh, some man-made representation of God in your attempt to honor God because he says that doesn't honor me. And throughout the history of God's people, this has been a common problem. Like we said, it happens right away. Right? Moses comes down the mountain to find the people doing this. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in the church age we live in, there have been a lot of times that we fall into this directing of our worship toward uh, images or, or man-made representations of God, whatever they may be. And sometimes it's blatant like with Aaron. Right? Sometimes it, it is a blatant uh, action that is done very purposefully. Sometimes, though, it, it's taking things that God has made 
or commanded us to make, and then turning them into some form of talisman, some form of of way that we can control or confine God, some way we can direct him by directing our worship toward him, something that we direct our hope toward in the hopes that that will reach the Lord. This happens to the people of Israel many times. For instance, there's a time when uh, the people in the judgment of God are being bitten by serpents, and God has them set up a bronze statue of a serpent. He tells them to do this. It was a good thing, a right thing. And he says whenever anyone looks on it, after being bit by a serpent, they'll be healed. So it saved a lot of people. This was a means that God used, a means of his grace to the people. And yet we learn that uh, many years later it had to be torn down because the people began directing their worship toward that statue. It became something that it was never supposed to be. This happens with the the Ark of the Covenant. This happens with the the temple, right? Where because of that that physical space, because of this this physical representation of the presence of God, like the Ark of the Covenant, we can somehow force God. We can somehow force him to do what we want. So for instance, the people of Israel will take the Ark and they'll they'll go into battle even when God tells them not to because they think by by doing this, by taking this physical item, we're, we're... telling God what he has to do. He has to bless us if we do it this way. But this isn't some kind of talisman. It's not something imbued with magical powers. When it's used against the directive of God, it does not bless them as they want. Whatever God gives us has to be used according to his determination. So Saul offers sacrifice to God. But God condemns him for it and and takes the kingdom away from him because of it. Why? Because he was never the one that was supposed to be offering sacrifice. It was against his command. Nadab and Abihu are consumed by fire when they, being, being lawfully ordained priests, using means that God had given, incense and bowls, and and yet they're consumed by fire because they did so against the, the command of God. You cannot worship God just as you want to or as seems natural to you, as you you think makes the most logical sense as far as you understand him. No, God determines how he is to be worshipped. God tells you what he desires from you. That's not to, in some way, just, you know, box you in and burden you. This isn't to harm you. Or to keep you from doing things that would be of benefit to you. There's a 5th century uh, Christian named Salvianus who has this quote. He says, God's commandments do not burden us, but adorn us. God's commandments do not burden us, but adorn us. This is not God's desire to remove all artistic expression from the church or all beauty. He does this to preserve his honor and glory, which ultimately is the source of all true beauty. It's to adorn you that God gives these commands. And it may seem at times that we need to, we need to fix something about the worship of God, that we need to change it according to personal inclinations or, or trends and things that are more fashionable 
But when those things are not in line with the determinations of God in Scripture, what you're doing is you're, you're creating something that is moving away from the, the beauty and the glory of God, not closer to it. Think about how, how fashion trends move through people. Right? You can probably think of times in your life, you probably have you know, picture evidence of ways that you've dressed that you look back on and you think, I can't believe I did that. Right? I can't believe I wore something like that. Right? I was thinking there's so many, you know, just, just jeans, different trends in jeans. Right? Maybe you wore skinny jeans, maybe you wore bell bottoms, parachute pants, the big parachute jeans. I showed the youth group this once. I don't even remember their official name, but I was telling them about this and a bunch of them were like, I, what is that? And I was like, well, you have to see this. Parachute pants. And we look back on some of these things and we think, wow, how ridiculous did that look? Right? That, that looks so bad. But in the moment, because it's a fashionable trend, we think, this is, this is great. Right? I, I look good in this. We often do this in the church. We want to follow trends, things that are fashionable, trends immediate or even ancient, novelties, things that seem exciting to us or avant-garde. We want to add elements to the worship of the church. And shouldn't we have the freedom to do that? Doesn't that seem right? Especially if we really, I mean, if we really feel like it'll connect us to God more. But when you look at those things from the vantage point of Scripture, right, you should be able to see that anything that the all-glorious, awe-inspiring, awesome God of all beauty, the source of all true beauty, anything that he did not command will ultimately fall short of his glory. Ultimately, it will fall short of what he deserves. And even if something seems like, you know, this is really, really beautiful, in the moment, all it actually is is another awkward boy in skinny jeans. You look back at it and you think, wow, I can't believe we did that. Why is this? What's the reason given for a command like this? It's rooted in the character of God himself. It's rooted in the fact that God is a jealous God. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. We sometimes use the word jealous to describe envy, and that's not what's going on here. Jealousy is the desire for something that you are due, something that is rightfully yours. It's right, for instance, for a husband to desire the the complete affection of his wife. And if we we knew someone that, that didn't have that desire, we'd think there's something a little wrong. Why isn't that there? Now, in, in us, right, in humans, jealousy, it can be tinged with our sin. It may not always be right. So it may come out of you know, insecurity or, or some kind of desire to dominate or something like that. But, but that's not God. He is jealous in that he is due your complete affection. Right? His people should worship him and not just worship him, but worship him as he desires. Think about in our own relationships how, how often there is conflict because of how we try to love one another. 
We may think we're really serving someone and caring for them, but if it's not being done in a way that they would receive it, it may not actually communicate love. We talk about the love languages, right? Maybe we, we experience love different. We, we receive love in different ways. And so there are different ways that we may need to change to show love to someone. And we take that sort of thing pretty seriously, right? Because we want to have good relationships with each other. We want others to receive love from us in a way that they would appreciate And if that matters in our relationships, between one another, if that matters man to man, human to human, if that matters on our level, how much more should it matter that we we communicate to God our love and devotion as he desires? God's jealousy is not paranoia. It's not insecurity. His jealousy is because he, he legitimately is due all honor and glory. Right? He, he deserves everything that he demands of us. And it's not in such a way that he wants us to give this to him, but he knows that it will be really bad for us, and he just doesn't care. No, it's also good for you. It's also something that would be in line with how you've been made in the image of God. God is a jealous God. And for those who hate him, Right, for those who, who do not obey his commandments, do not keep his commandments. Right? These are those, according to this text, that hate him. To those that hate him, it says that he visits the iniquity even on their children. And that might seem a little extreme. How could it be, it, you know, is it really hating God to not follow his commandments, to not worship him in the ways that he desires? But it is. If, if love corresponds to obedience, then disobedience corresponds to hate. But what if someone's really sincere? Right? Maybe, maybe they're, they're not really following the commands of God, but they really, are, they really desire to. Right? They, they're motivated well. And they have true sincerity in what they're doing. Well, that's not the requirement of God. Sincerity is not what he requires. Sincerity or feeling strongly on an emotional level, having really good motives, these are not actually goods in themselves. It's great if sincerity is aligned with obedience. But what God requires is obedience. Imagine a father tells his child to go clean their room, and they come back, and they haven't cleaned their room, but they say, well, I felt really good about going outside and I thought you would like that because you love outside right you love the outside you love the outdoors and so I thought I would honor you by going out and enjoying something that I know that you love so much well that's not love that's not obedience there's there's nothing in that that's actually good worship that's not done according to God's command no matter how well motivated or sincere it's received by God as hatred as a kind of hatred. Now, it's not to say that God is not gracious. Actually, his grace is all through this. It's not fatalism. It's it's not saying that because he will... visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation, it's, it's not saying that there's no chance of 
repentance. There's no hope. There's, there's, there's no hope for anybody involved. It's not fatalism. It specifically says that this is going to happen to those who, who hate me. And even there, there's a, there is the possibility of repentance. Right? For those who don't hate him, this isn't going to be true. There's opportunity to repent. And we see the grace of God in that the negative effects of our sin are not forever. This says to the third and the fourth generation. There's, there's an ending point. There, there's a point where our sin can't do any more damage. Whereas his steadfast love, his love to those who love him and keep his commandments, it says that that, that is to thousands of generations. His covenant faithfulness is total and complete to those who trust in Christ and submit to his will. The reality is, though, that if you train your children to worship God falsely, leading them into false worship of of false representations of God, or using novel means apart from his command, it, it does have negative consequences for them and for you. You're catechizing them to hate God if you're not worshiping and teaching them to worship according to his word. And that's a scary truth. That's a heavy responsibility. But the effects, again, of that sin are limited. And God's grace is unlimited. You need only trust him and walk in his ways. The problem with the people of God trying to make some kind of of image or representation of him is that God is spirit. You'll see throughout uh, the the rest of this this period in in the the history of Israel's life, there's emphasis over and over on God speaking, that he spoke to us. That we did not see any form, but, but he spoke. And God is spirit. Right? Even Christ himself, being fully divine and fully man, he is, he is fully God. And we cannot adequately represent God in image form, in some, in some way that we can create. By definition, we limit him because he is, he is infinite. He is beyond us and we can only make limited things. Now, I don't think that most of us here are probably in danger of setting up little bull shrines in the corner of our homes. That actually was something that was dangerous to the Israelites. But this command goes all the way to the heart. It's it's total and complete. So even in your own mind, do you imagine God in such a way that, that limits him, that puts limitations on him? Something that's inconsistent with his word. We often need God to humble us. That we would recognize that in some way we've begun to think of him in one particular way. That may not be all wrong, but limits him. Sometimes we do this by emphasizing just you know, particular characteristics of God. That again are true things of him. Right? So God is love. God is love. My God is love. And that's true in and of itself. But, but what if you took that and said, therefore, I don't care for hearing about this judgmental God who visits iniquity 
on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. Right? That's not my God. That's not my Jesus. My Jesus is welcoming. He's affirming. He's accepting. Or maybe on the flip side, right? You think, well, all of that grace stuff, all of that love stuff, right? That's not the true God, right? He is demanding, right? We need to meet the obligations he puts in front of us, and that's it. You you take one revealed aspect of who God is, and you, you make it everything, And in so doing, you you put a kind of limitation on him. You create for yourself a God in your own image, in in the categories that you want him to fit in. All of this means that in our worship, in our thinking about God, and in in our following after him, all of it has to be word-centered. It has to be centered on his revelation, on his speech, and how he has spoken to us. Just as the glory of God in the face of Jesus is made known through proclamation, through the proclamation of the gospel, so the worship of God, our lives in worship to him, are determined according to his word. God, again, is not against all visible things, earthly things, right? He gives us things. He gives us uh, the sacraments, visible signs of his grace. He gives us one another made in his image, especially being people who are remade, renewed in the image and likeness of Christ, who is the image of God. So, so we declare something about him. So, so we represent him in a certain way. But Worship is not to be determined by that image. Worship is not to be built around that image. It's to be built around and determined by his word. Faith comes by hearing. Let me close with this. Uh, Thomas Watson, who I've been reading a lot, um, he's an English Puritan minister from the 1600s. He pointed out, and you know, something that we've mentioned quite a few times now is that in this whole section of Exodus, you, you really have a motif both of a father and his son, right? The first Israel being the firstborn, but also of a husband and his wife. That God is coming into a covenant relationship with this people. And Thomas Watson, playing off of that, he says, A good wife will be so discreet and chaste as to give her husband no just occasion of jealousy. And that should be our heart as well. As the church of Christ, you should not seek to do things as you wish, as you please, as you, as you sincerely think would be good. But rather, you should seek to honor God according to what he has asked of you. You should seek to follow him as he has asked. That means our worship must be according to his words. That doesn't make it easy necessarily, but this is how he desires that you express your love for him, that it be according to what he has asked. God has determined how we are to worship, so then let us determine to worship him as he desires. Would you pray with me?
Father God, we do pray that you'd help us to do just that. That you would give us a a determination to honor and worship you as you have asked us to do. We admit, Father, that that is not always easy for us. Um, whether because of, of desires that we have or just because of, of uh, lack of understanding. We don't always understand what it is that, that you would have us do. So we pray that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would guide us by your word, and that where we fall short, that you would be gracious to us, and that as we seek to love you and honor you and keep your commandments, following after Christ, that you would bless us and our children, that you would bless generations to come for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.